0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Thank you guys for coming. And I know a lot of you have come from far and from wide, from different states. Somebody, I think, came from Michigan. Did you? Who came from Michigan? You flew. So that's amazing. Thank you for being here. Um, there are several very godly young men and women from the church where I've been privileged to pastor for the last 20 years, sitting out among you. They're a little bit clumped together, but it's a singles conference, you guys are supposed to. But, but they're here, and I can vouch for each and every one of them and their godly character, and all of them serve in our church and serve the Lord with grateful hearts. And uh, if you are interested in any of them, you have to be willing to move to Santa Cruz, though because we're not letting any of them go, (laughs) but uh, we're thankful to be here, and we're praising God for the opportunity to come and dig into his word. This is a singles conference, so presumably uh, most of you who have registered and most of you who have come are are single people, and like all God-fearing, image-bearing single people, your heart's desire is to not be single forever, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord, Proverbs tells us with great confidence. Sometimes we joke about the fact that it doesn't say the corresponding thing about wives who find husbands, but it does go both ways. Favor goes both ways in godly Christ-centered marriages. And we know that uh, in this particular era and time that we're living in, Marriage itself is an institution in America and even all around the world is experiencing a significant decline if you've been paying attention to things and paying attention to the news. Fewer and fewer young people are getting married because fewer and fewer young people want to be married. And the reasons why they don't want to be married, at least least the most significant reasons I think, they are self-evidently unbiblical reasons more and more young people are being shaped more and more by the godless values of our culture than they are being shaped by the values that are revealed in God's word. And so people today prize individuality and, and independence a lot more than they ought to. And people prize worldly treasures and wealth and possessions and property far more than God's word teaches us to. And people find satisfaction, sexual satisfaction in all kinds of ways outside of godly marriage, which is God's institution. And so in their minds, they don't see the need to be married because as they see it, marriage interferes with their independence. Marriage in their eyes infringes on their their individualism and it impedes their pursuit of all the earthly stuff that they're so interested in and and even idolize in this world. And and marriage to them offers little in return that they can't find somewhere else. But if you've spent money to come all the way to a singles conference at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada, in the middle of winter with snow on the ground, this was a great time to plan a conference, um, wasn't it? Uh, But if you've come here and spent money to come here and come far and wide to come here to this church specifically where my friends Brian Borgman and Daniel Corey fearlessly and regularly oppose the godlessness of the culture and stand up and defend the truth of God's word courageously week after week, then chances are, right, if, if I spent all the time that we have together talking about all of that kind of stuff about marriage and singleness and the values and all of that, I would just be preaching to the choir. You're here because you already prize the institution of marriage. You're here because you're hoping and praying that someday God is in his kindness going to bless you with the goodness of a godly spouse and a marriage and and a family because you love God's word and because you love God's truth and because you love his Holiness. That's why you're here. That's my working assumption, at least, as to why you're here. Maybe uh, you could care less about anything I say this weekend, and you're just really stoked to be in a room full of single people who, who claim Christ as their Lord. But that's not my working assumption. I believe that God's word is precious to all of you. So, what I don't want to do with our time this weekend is to spend our time in God's word just focusing on the Bible's teaching about singleness and marriage Specifically, what I want for us to focus on is something even more important from the Word of God, something that is absolutely foundational and central and fundamental to all of our lives as Christians, whether we're single or married or anything else. And the focus is, what defines us? That's the question to etch on your minds and in your hearts this weekend. What defines us? What defines you? As a person. And tonight I want to start to talk about and think about all of that with you by looking actually at two passages of scripture together. Philippians 3 is listed in your programs and printed there. Good. I see people getting Bibles out. I love that. I hear that at this church you may get a little bit of of guff for having your Bible on your iPhone, but that's okay with me as long as it doesn't start speaking out loud. But get your Bibles out, whether they're in paper form or digital form. We're going to look at Philippians 3, but in order to understand what Paul is saying there, we've got to learn and understand a, a, a really massively important truth in another passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 5. So first, for the setup to Philippians 3, turn to Romans 5 with me, and let's start taking a look at this Question of who we are and what defines us and what our identity is. You might be six feet tall and of European descent with blue eyes, or you might be five foot two and of Asian descent with brown eyes and dark hair. You might have grown up in a loving, nurturing family and had no want for any kind of earthly need or. On the other hand, your past might have been full of all kinds of traumatic and even abusive experiences. And all of those things describe you and have had an impact on you and have helped to shape certain circumstances and courses of your life and experiences in your life. But but as much as those things describe you and make an indelible impact on you, they don't define you. Ultimately, you might be rich or you might be poor. You might be married or you might be single. And again, those things describe you, but they don't define you in the ultimate sense of what you are and who you are. And that's what we're talking about here tonight. What defines you? Only the word of God who created you can provide the answer to what defines you. And in his word, God reveals to us the fundamental essence of what we are and who we are. Those are the the kinds of things that fundamentally define us. Now the world, you know, the unbelieving world that suppresses God's truth and shakes its fist at God and says, we're not going to be bound by your definitions, by your rules, by your authority, by your law, by your word. The world is all about defining themselves. That's very vogue these days, isn't it? The world's all about saying, well, you alone can decide what you are who you are, and what you want to be. You can be whatever you want to be. That's the world's world's credo when it comes to what defines us. But it's a credo that's based on rejecting God's place as the creator, as the Lord, and putting self in the place that God alone is worthy of on the throne of our lives. And then in our humanness too, It can be really easy, and I think a lot of you know what I'm talking about here. It can be really easy to mistakenly think that certain things define us when they actually don't, and don't need to, and shouldn't. So things like traumatic pain that we've suffered in the past, or things that, other people have done to us or things that other people have said about us narratives that they've got spinning in our heads and we think well that's what I am that's who I am that's what that's what defines me or things we've done in the past right miserable failures sins that we've been guilty of we tend to think that defines who I am or whether we're married or single it it's easy to think and end up living like those kinds of things define us, but in reality, they don't. The actual objective reality is that what defines each and every single human being that has ever lived in this world is what we are and who we are according to the God who made us. And I want to talk about the who mostly with you. But first, what? What what are we ultimately? Ultimately, We are, according to God who made us, we are persons who are made in his image. And in in the words of John Frame, that means that we were designed by God to resemble and to reflect God. Chiefly and especially his holiness and, and all of his moral excellencies, Frame says, his righteousness. His purity, His love, His wisdom, His truth, His humility. Our lives were made and designed by God specifically to resemble and to reflect all of those kinds of qualities that are inherent to the character and nature of God Himself. That's what we are. We're image bearers. So that doesn't, see, that doesn't just describe something about you, that fundamentally defines you in terms of the what. How about the who? And again, this is our focus here mostly. The God who made us in his image also reveals to us who we are. And specifically in relationship to him. So this is where Romans 5 comes in. God's word couldn't be more clear about this fact, about this reality. That who we are in relationship to the God who made us is his enemies. When we come into this world by birth. All have sinned, all, and fall short of the glory of God. You you know that verse in Romans 3.23, right? All we like sheep have gone astray, all of us, and turned after our own way, every single one of us, Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless because no one does good, not even one. That's what the Bible says about us in our relationship to God. We are rebels against Him. All of us, guilty of not honoring God or giving thanks to God, Romans 1, exchanging the truth about God for lies, worshiping and serving the creation instead of the creator, living according to our own sinful passions and desires rather than living for what pleases God. That's, that's what defines us. So it's, it's that we come into this world putting ourselves in a position of hostility and enmity with God. And that's what, that's what the Bible describes about us through and through That's what Paul says, that's what James says, that's what John says, that's what the prophets say, that's what we hear all the way back since the garden. That's the status of our relationship to the God who made us. When we're born into this world, when we're conceived in our mother's wombs, that's what we are, that's who we are. Hostility, enmity with God. And the reason for it is this, it's not just that every single human being that has ever been born in the history of the world and lived on this planet, except for Jesus Christ himself, of course, but all the rest of us, it's not just that we ended up following Adam's bad example and, and, and doing sinful things and falling short of his glory, and and then alienating ourselves from the God who made us, and and then incurring the penalty of death because the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. All of that's true, we all do that, right? All human beings, except for Jesus, have actually sinned in our lives all the time, and earned as God's just judgment, we've earned death. But see, What God's word teaches us in Romans 5 is that even before any of us do any sinful things, we are all sinners already by nature. That's the reality that Paul makes crystal clear in this chapter. So look at verse 12 here of Romans chapter 5. Paul says this, Therefore, Just as through one man, that's Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And here's what he means by all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death still reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned. In the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. And in those verses, you can see Paul very clearly laying out this teaching that sin entered the world through one man, death through sin, and that sin was in the world even before God gave the law through Moses. And what he means by that. Is that even though there was no law to break, people were still sinning and dying as a result because even without the written law to violate, they were all sinners already in Adam. They already had natural sin and guilt before they ever did anything in Adam. Verses that follow make that absolutely clear. Look at verse 15. But the free, the, the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Many died through one man, Adam's transgression. And then verse 16 says that, that, that by transgression of, of Adam... His sin, death reigned through Adam in, in every human life. And then verse 18 says that through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Through the one transgression there resulted condemnation to everyone irregardless of, of their own sin in actuality. So see, we didn't all just follow Adam's bad example of disobeying God. We didn't just inherit a propensity to sin, a nature of sinfulness from Adam. We're also just guilty in Adam. We're all all condemned in Adam from the get-go. That's who we are. Because of the sin that he committed before we ever committed any actual sins of our own. Which means this. It means that the single most significant thing by an infinite measure that defines us as human beings in terms of what we are and who we are from our conception in the womb before we could ever do anything. From our birth into this world, it's that we we are alienated from God and at enmity with him already and subject to death, subject to eternal condemnation because from the get-go we are sinners by nature in Adam. Adam. I mean, that's a big deal, see? That's an infinitely and eternally big deal. I mean, what in the world, what in the universe, what, let alone in your life, during the short maybe 100 years, if you're lucky that you get to live here, what could possibly matter more than that? What could possibly define you more than that? In a more important way than the fact that we're born into this world in Adam. And so in sin. And so guilty. And in a relationship of enmity with God and eternally deserving God's righteous wrath and condemnation for all of eternity. What can matter more than that? That is eternally significant. That matters infinitely more than anything else that's true about us or that describes us. Any other experience we've had, any other relationship, any other circumstance... Or, or, or reality of our lives. We come into this world as God's enemies, enemies of the Most High, Sovereign, Eternal, Holy, Almighty God. That's what defines us. So this is the biblical doctrine that we call original sin, and and it's not just referring to the first sin that Adam committed in the garden. It's referring to that first sin as the origin of all of our sin and all of our guilt. Because by birth, this is what's true about us, by virtue of our relationship to Adam. Because God created him to be the head of the whole human race, the representative of the whole human race, and what he did would apply and account to all of us. So we we all come into this world united to Adam in this way, as our God appointed federal head and so guilty and so sinful. And so condemned in him. And of course, to this truth, the natural heart, the sinful heart, the unbelieving human heart and mind cries out, well, that's not fair, right? It objects to this doctrine. I don't deserve to inherit the guilt of somebody else. I want to stand on my own merits before God. Really? You think you would have done better? There was no sinful nature before Adam blew it. How are you gonna do better? How am I gonna do better? There wasn't a world full of temptation and vice and pressure before Adam sinned. How are you gonna do better than he did? But we still, natural, are natu- the, the unbelieving mind says we don't deserve to inherit Adam's guilt because we think it's, it's unfair of God, it's unjust of God to account us guilty because of what Adam did all the way back in the garden before we were ever even born. And we think we'd be better off being judged on our own and not in connection with someone else. But here's the point that I I want you to all get tonight and contemplate tonight, and that Paul wants us all to contemplate in Romans five and in Philippians, where we're gonna turn in a second here, and, and also everywhere else that he writes in the New Testament. Here's the point, God's establishing of this pattern of headship, covenant headship, where the head of the race is going to represent everyone else who comes from him, that pattern was so far from being actually unfair or unjust that it was, in fact, the most gracious possible way for God to deal with the human race. And here's why because of the words at the end of verse 14 there of Romans chapter 5. Paul says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned like Adam did. Adam broke a specific rule. And even if you never did that, you're still condemned in Adam. And at the end of the verse, it says that Adam is a type of him who is to come or was to come. Which means this, Adam as the representative head of the whole human race was a type of Jesus Christ. And that's what the whole chapter is all about. It's about showing how just like Adam was our representative and so we're all guilty and sinful in him. So Jesus, appointed by God to be our new representative is the one who also gives us what is not ours so that we can be forgiven and declared righteous in him. In him. And those words in him are the words that are used dozens and dozens of times all throughout the New Testament scriptures to define what our theme is this weekend. What does it mean to be in union with Christ? If... If God had chosen to judge us in ourselves, if he said, okay, fine, you don't want to be judged in Adam, you want to stand on your own and see if you can do any better and then let me judge you just in yourself. If he had done that with with no relationship to any other person, then there would never ever be any way for us to escape his wrath. Our condemnation would, would be inevitable and it would be eternally unavoidable and inescapable because our only hope of salvation is that just as we've been judged in Adam, so might God judge us in Christ. So when we say we don't deserve to inherit Adam's guilt, we have to ask ourselves, well, did Christ deserve to inherit our guilt on the cross? One way or the other, right? In Adam or or just in yourself, you would have been counted guilty. But there's only one way for you now to be counted righteous, and it's not in you. It's only in him. Only to be united to Christ and washed by his blood and clothed in his righteousness with all of your sin accounted to him and atoned for by his work for you on the cross. So see, this is is the essence of the gospel. In contrast to the essence of all false religion, every last one of the false religions requires every single person to stand on their own, on their own merits, before their gods. Only in God's true economy, and only by God's great grace, is someone able to stand with us And for us. And without that, there is absolutely no hope. And so that brings us then to Philippians 3. So turn there. And look at what Paul also wrote here in the book of Philippians. And we're going to look at the first 11 verses. And we're going to focus especially on verses 8 through 11. Background. So that we can understand it. In this chapter, Paul is warning the Christians and the church in the city of Philippi about a particular form of false teaching that had become a scourge in that place and in a lot of other places too. So Paul had planted this church, he'd planted a lot of churches, and he had planted it among Gentile people, non-Jewish people. And they had come to faith in Jesus as the Savior, not only of Jewish people, but of of people from every tribe and tongue and nation all around the world. And all of this was happening, and and the church in Philippi got planted during Paul's missionary journeys throughout Asia and and Macedonia and Greece. Uh, Philippi was in, in Macedonia. And of course, we know, I hope, I think, that Paul wrote this letter during a time when he was imprisoned most likely in Rome, most likely during the time that he spent there at the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28. And he's gotten word while he's there that this false teaching, this spiritually poisonous false teaching had made its way to Philippi and that the Christians there were being threatened by it and confused by it. And here's what it was, this toxic, unbiblical, anti-gospel false teaching. It's what sometimes gets called Judaizing. It's what Paul labels as a false gospel over in the book of Galatians, which we're going to look at tomorrow. It's what the apostles dealt with in kind of a prototypical form in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem council. It's this teaching, this insistence by Jewish people, ethnically Jewish people who had come to faith in Jesus or who had assented in their minds at least to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel. And what they were insisting is that if you're going to bring Gentiles, non-Jews, into the church, into the company of the people of God, then faith in Jesus as the true Messiah wasn't enough. They've got to do something. See? They can't just believe in Jesus There are certain good works, they said, that have to be rigorously done and maintained as a prerequisite for their salvation, for for these Gentiles' salvation. And specifically, the Judaizers were insisting that, that Gentiles had to be physically circumcised, which was a law for the Old Testament Jewish people, and they had to rigorously keep the law of Moses, including a lot of the dietary laws, ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, and they had to do all of that in order to be saved. So the essence of it was this, look, if you're not Jewish and you're a Gentile and you want to become a Christian, that's fine. But in order to become a Christian, first you have to become Jewish by doing all of these things. And Paul objects to this as a Jewish man in the strongest possible way because he knows that it rips the very heart right out of the true gospel because it's shifting people's confidence away from Jesus and putting it onto themselves and what they do or don't do. And the end result is that it leaves them in themselves and what they're capable of doing and not doing. And so it leaves them in their sin. It leaves them in Adam still. Which means... As we've seen, enmity with God still. Death, everlasting condemnation still. And so Paul wants the Gentile Christians in Philippi to understand that this this is anathema. This has to be rejected. And he wants them, verse 1 says, to rejoice in the Lord. See, put all your focus on Him. And none of it on yourself and rejoice in Him and not what you can do in order to get yourself into His good graces. Jesus and only Jesus and everything that Jesus did and everything that Jesus has done to atone for your sin and grant you forgiveness and justification and make peace between you and God by the blood of His cross... And reconcile you to himself and give you the right to be called adopted children of God. That's your only reason to rejoice. And if you don't look at him alone through faith alone apart from anything about you. Then you got no reason to rejoice. And then he warns them in verse 2 in no uncertain terms to beware of these false teachers. He Calls them dogs. Which was not kind in the ancient world because nobody thought dogs were, were cute and cuddly then. He calls them evil workers purveying a false circumcision, a false way of being cleansed from your unrighteousness and and, and being brought into covenant relationship with God. Because the only true way, verse 3, is to put all of your confidence in Jesus and no confidence in your own flesh, in yourself, in your ability to do anything to earn God's favor and change this most significantly defining thing about yourself, which is that by nature you're an Adam. You can't do anything to change that. You're in sin. You're in enmity with God. There's no hope that you could ever possibly do anything to change that. You're subject to God's eternal wrath, and you cannot fix that. Only Jesus can. And then what Paul does in verses 4-6... through is absolutely brilliant. So these, these false teachers, these Judaizers, they're teaching that you've gotta do good stuff. You've gotta have like a really awesome resume, essentially, of good works, of righteous law-keeping deeds that, that qualify you to be in good standing with God and in good favor with God. So Paul says, well, let's assume that's true, just for the sake of the argument, just to play devil's advocate here. Let's assume that's true. Hey, check out my resume, Paul's saying in these verses. Look what I got going on, right? By your standard, I'm more qualified than any of you all, right? You you think we need personal credentials to get right with God? I've got credentials, baby. This is what Paul's doing in these verses. So he says in verse 3, that we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then he's saying in verse 4 that if we could put confidence in the flesh, in our ability, in our accomplishments, in our righteousness, in our worthiness, then Paul, above all people, would be able to be confident in himself. That's what he's doing here. If that's how it works, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, Paul says in verse 4, and his whole point, of course, is it's not, this is not how it works. So in order to make this point really powerfully, Paul goes ahead and highlights all the stuff about him that he could be confident in if that was how it works. So verse 5, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he's pointing to his, he's pointing to his pedigree. See? See? his ancestry, his people, unimpeachable, spotless, right? These are his roots. And that meant everything to Jewish people who were insisting that Jewishness is necessary to being in good standing with God. And and so Paul wasn't just Jewish, he was the most Jewish Jew you could ever imagine is what he's saying here. Circumcised on the eighth day, after he was born. That's precisely what the law prescribed. Some Jews had come to be far less observant and they circumcised their babies or their boys much later because they lived in this kind of egalitarian, Roman cultural mess. And then people who converted to Judaism as adult, they were only circumcised after their conversion as adults which is what the false teachers were insisting that the Gentiles had to do. But see, not Paul. His circumcision was the noblest kind in the eyes of the Jewish community. And he's not a Gentile convert, right? He's a full-blooded descendant of Abraham by birth, of the nation of Israel. Not only that, of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was, uh, you remember, Jacob's youngest, last-born child. Jacob was Rachel's last child and, and, and died after giving birth to Benjamin. Did I say Jacob? I meant Benjamin. She named him originally Ben-Oni, which means son of trouble because her pregnancy was so troubled and she was so sick and, and giving birth to him took so much out of her that, that she lost her life at the end of it. So his name was Son of Trouble before, after Rachel died. Jacob then changed his name to Benhamin. Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. You see how precious Jacob was? Benjamin was to Jacob. He loved Benjamin. Benjamin was the only one of Jacob's 12 sons who was actually born in the promised land. And it was from Benjamin that the apostle Paul's namesake. Remember, Paul was originally Saul of Tarsus, changes his name to Paul after he encounters Jesus on the Damascus road in Acts chapter nine. Well, who's he named after? He's named after King Saul, the first king of Israel, who's a descendant of Benjamin. And Benjamin and, and his brother Judah were the only two tribes who remained faithful to the dynasty of David during Jeroboam's Rebe- rebellion and, and revolt in, in 1 Kings 12. So, so see, the point is this, being of the tribe of Benjamin meant that there was absolutely no scandalous blot on Paul's family heritage. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And that also meant that, that w- w- again, while, while other Jewish parents living in the Roman Empire kind of raised their kids in a kind of kind of nominally Jewish way, compromising a lot because of the cultural pressures. Not living really according to all of the Jewish distinctions because because of all the diversity. Paul Paul wasn't raised that way. Paul was raised faithfully, without compromise, in all of the Jewish rites, all of the traditions, and keeping all of the Old Testament scriptures, all his life, even becoming, verse 5, a Pharisee. As to the law, a Pharisee. And as to zeal, as a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church. And as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Blameless. You know who the Pharisees were, right? They were that sect within Judaism. And they they prized precision in the scriptures, in the law, and in living according to all of it. More than anybody, they prized it. Every single one of the 613 laws of Moses, rigorously observed by the Pharisees, and then they one-upped it, right? They said, well, well, if we wanna really keep from breaking this law, then we're gonna build a bunch of laws outside of it that we're gonna say, we don't even break those laws so that we don't even get close to breaking God's law, right? This is where you get all of these weird stories in the history of the Jewish people, that that, that were alive around the time of Christ? Well, the, the law is you can't work on the Sabbath. But you can walk a certain number of paces and you can eat a meal that you've cooked before the Sabbath on the Sabbath and that's not work. So if we count 1,500 paces and bury a meal in the ground and then count 1,500 more and and bury lunch out there, and then 1,500 more and bury dinner, then we're not working. This is how they did things. A woman was not allowed to look in a reflective surface on the Sabbath because if she did, she might see a gray hair on her head and be tempted to pull it out and that might be work. So see, we've gone from working on the Sabbath to pulling out a hair to looking in a mirror and this is, how, this is how ridiculous they were. <laughs> and this is how Paul was. And even then, it wasn't your average Pharisee even whose zeal for holiness drove him to do the things that Paul did in his opposition to Christianity, in his opposition to the church, which, which the Pharisees were opposed to. Paul was so zealous in his opposition to Christianity, he overshadowed them all as a persecutor of the church. He traveled far and wide to find any followers of Jesus he could and drag them off to prison and often to their deaths. So his whole life from his birth to his days of a Pharisee, a Pharisee to top all Pharisees, was one that the most righteous, rigorous Jewish people could only call impeccable in terms of his own personal righteousness. Blameless is the word that he uses for himself right there at the end of verse six. Unimpeachable. That's what the whole Jewish community would say about the character and the righteousness of Paul before he met Jesus. So if the Judaizers are right, that someone standing before God, their acceptance by God, being found favorable in God's sight, depends on things in themselves that they could be confident of then Paul had more reason by far to be confident than anyone. But look at what Paul says about his resume. Now that he's a Christian, now that he's in Christ. Look what he says about his pedigree and his heritage and all of, this, all of these impeccable credentials. Look at verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, all that stuff, those things have I counted as Loss. For the sake of Christ. Why? Well, because the Judaizers were wrong. Dead wrong. That's why. No one can be righteous enough to earn God's favor because none are righteous, even a little bit. No, not one. Because our hearts are dead inside in sins and trespasses, Ephesians 2, 1 tells us. And and, and real righteousness, living fruit for righteousness can't come from a dead tree. No one can ever satisfy the infinite debt of sin that we all owe, let alone the eternal standard of God's infinite holiness when they're not capable of even a little bit of righteousness. God says, you shall be holy as I am holy. So Paul knew now, as a Christian, as a regenerated man, that all of his so-called righteousness was really just stuff that was pouring out of a hopelessly sinful heart. Worthless. His life as a Pharisee, before he met Jesus, was no better than the sinners that Isaiah describes in Isaiah 64, where he says that even their most righteous deeds were filthy, defiled rags. Because it's all just, just outward forms of obedience. It's all just, to use Jesus' words when he condemned the Pharisees, it's all just whitewash on a grave. It's all just trying trying to polish up a grave, but what matters is what's inside the grave, which is rot and decay and death and hypocrisy and greed. So, all of Paul's so-called righteousness that he so zealously pursued could do precisely nothing to make his dead heart alive or to change the fact that he was a desperate sinner in Adam. Not even Paul could do a single thing to change that most defining reality about who he was and what he was as a sinner in Adam, at at, at enmity with God, dead in sin and trespass, worthy of condemnation forever. And none of us can do anything about it either. None of us can change it. So that's what Paul means when he says, whatever things were gained to me, those I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Because Christ is the only one. And Christ is the only way to actually gain what Paul and the Pharisees and all of these false teaching Judaizers were hoping that their own righteousness could get them. Peace with God. Favor with God. Eternal life with God. Our own righteousness, which which is actually no righteousness at all, can't gain us anything from God except his condemnation because it's all just hypocrisy when we're in Adam. But Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, who covered himself with our sin on the cross in order to cover our sin that was on him with his cleansing blood, and then cover us with his perfect righteousness, Christ can do it all, Christ does it all. Through faith, he lovingly, mercifully, graciously takes everything that we are in Adam on himself and gives everything that he is to us in exchange. So Paul counts all of his credentials, his righteousness, His pedigree, everything that he put his confidence in, it's all loss, he says, for the sake of Christ. That that word loss means to forfeit it. I I reject it as a ground of any confidence of of putting myself into a good standing with God. Then he kicks it up a notch, doesn't he? In verse eight, more than that, it's not just I, I reject it all. It's not just that I forfeit it all. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord from, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Anything about himself, anything in him that he might be tempted to say, well, that's pretty good, God. Check this out, God. Surely God will be impressed with this. Anything like that, Paul says, none of it is worth anything. I count it all as loss, and more than counting it as loss, he counts it all as as rubbish in verse 8. Skubala in Greek. That means stuff that is so absolutely worthless and useless and undesirable that the only thing people do with it is throw it out into the trash pile. And in those days, Throwing it into the trash pile didn't mean in a nice scented glad bag in a in a nice clean can out at the curb for somebody else to haul away. It meant throwing it over the wall into a burn pile. That's what you did with scuba, with rubbish. It could refer to a bunch of stuff. It could refer to garbage. It could refer to rotten food. It could refer to that gross, nasty, charred, black, greasy sludge at the bottom of your your cooking pot before there were SOS pads. You just scoop all that out and throw it into the burn pile. It could could also refer to animal dung and, and excrement right? All of that kind of stuff is is useless, worthless, nasty, gross stuff that that, that all you want to do with it is toss it over the wall and into the burn pile. And that's how Paul characterizes everything that he used to be so proud of and and count as gain in his life. All the stuff that he thought defined him in a good way, he realizes defines me in a really bad way and I'm just going to chuck it all. All of his immaculate pedigree, all of his impeccable credentials, an unimpeachable character. It's worthless. It's just a big steaming pile of scuba, Paul says. Worthless, rotten, useless, foul, rubbish. <laughs> and he says there at the end of verse 9, and this is the quintessential statement I count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law and my keeping of the law, but that righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So there is everything we're talking about this weekend. There in verse nine are the words that we're focused on so significantly. These are so massively, critically, definitionally important words in terms of what defines us, in terms of what we are, in terms of who we are. So long as we have gained Christ by turning from our sin, by turning from all of our prideful self-confidence and self-righteousness and putting our confidence in him alone, which Paul did when he encountered Jesus in all of his glory on the Damascus road. He trashed every other pretense of righteousness and worthiness so that he could be found in Christ. You see it? You get it? I don't want to be found in me anymore, Paul says. I don't want to be in myself anymore, Paul says. There's no hope for me if I'm in myself anymore because that means I'm in sin. That means I'm in Adam. And accounted a sinner and guilty and worthy of everlasting death and condemnation because of my sin. Covenantal, federal connection to Adam, the first human being, the head of the human race. Now, see, Paul is revealing that through faith in Jesus who was crucified and raised, he's been given a whole new identity. He's become a part of a whole new race. A redeemed race, a forgiven race, a justified race. A a, a race of image-bearing human beings reconciled to God, no longer at enmity with God, but but chosen now, beloved now by God, adopted now by God as as sons and daughters in Christ and in Christ alone. Jesus is, 1 Corinthians 15.45 says, the second or the last Adam. It is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, but the last Adam, Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. And that's who Jesus is. He's the last Adam. A far better Adam than Adam was in terms of being our representative, right? So where Paul said in Romans 5, remember that we're all sinners in Adam? The great and, and wonderful juxtaposition in that passage is that in the last Adam, in Christ, who's our new representative, who's the head of a, a new redeemed race of humanity, we're not made sinners and, and condemned people, we're made righteous. Where death came to all who are in Adam, new life comes to all who are in Christ. Many died through the one man's transgression, Romans 5.15, but much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus, abound to the many. Judgment arose, Romans 5.16, from one transgression, Adams, resulting in condemnation for everybody. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. All our transgressions gave way to Christ paying for them all on the cross and pouring his righteousness out on us so that God would declare us to be righteous even though we've got no righteousness in ourselves. because just as Jesus was covered in our sins on the cross, so we are robed in his righteousness. And God says, I accept that. I accept you. I redefine you. By the transgression of the one Adam, death reigned through the one. But much more, Romans 5.17, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So do you see why Paul was so eager to just chuck all of his own righteousness and confidence in himself into the trash heap, into the, into the burn pile? where it belonged in reality because all of it everything that he thought defined him was really just a pile of rubbish that could never hope to redefine him from being an Adam from being guilty from being sinful from being at enmity with God and deserving condemnation forever so when Jesus came on that Damascus road in Acts 9 and encountered Paul his name was still Saul at that point and blinded Saul, with the light of all of the glorious holiness of God who Jesus is, and confronted him in his sin. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting not just my children, but me? You, you start to see the significance of this union that the people of God have with God the Son? What it means to be in Him? It's not just, hey, if you mess with my kid, I'm going to come. No, you're persecuting me, Saul. There's this connection that is so deep, so mysterious, that we can't fully grasp and understand it, but it's what the Bible's teaching we are in Christ. It doesn't just affect our status, it affects our whole identity and our whole nature and everything about our lives. So when that happened, Saul immediately became aware that what defined him in the most significant possible way was that he was in Adam. He was a sinner. He was God's enemy, not God's friend. And that nothing he could do could change anything about it or redefine him in any way. And so his own self-righteousness was rubbish. And he knew, I need righteousness to be right with God, but it can't be anything that comes from me. I need a righteousness that comes from somewhere else. He needed, verse 9, to be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God outside of me on the basis of faith. Because only God himself can do what we can never do for ourselves. Only God himself can redefine our lives and change our whole identity and our whole life, our whole relationship to God our whole status from being God's enemies to being beloved of God. And Christ's, Christ's love, Christ's incarnation, Christ's birth, Christ's perfectly righteous life, Christ's death on that cross, Christ's resurrection from the dead, Christ's ascension into heaven, and his enthronement at the right hand of God, and his intercession for us every single minute of every single day, all of that in union with him becomes ours, becomes what we are and who we are. So see, that's what what Saul got. By uniting himself to Saul in death and resurrection, this is what Christ did to him. Saul's sin was laid on Christ. Christ's blood cleansed it all. Christ's righteousness was laid on Saul so that in Christ, no longer in Adam, he was forgiven. Of everything. He was justified, declared perfectly, you are holy as I am holy, righteous by God. And then, as we'll see tomorrow in Romans 6, raised up to new, his nature was changed. Newness of life, no longer death defines me, but but life everlasting. And now he's not God's enemy, he's a child of the King of Kings. Redefined, redeemed, reborn. That's what it means to be in Christ. So that little phrase, again, in verse nine, in Christ. Paul wants to lose everything in order to gain Christ and be found in him. That little phrase is is dozens of times used all throughout the New Testament. And it's the apostles' way of explaining and elucidating what it is that defines us in the most ultimate sense, what's most important about us and what's most important to us. Are you an Adam, and so in sin and God's enemy? Or are you in Christ, united to him, and united to everything that he is and everything that he's done to redeem sinners? So to be in Christ, to be in union with Christ means to be so united to his person and to his work as he indwells us, as he abides in us, in his own words, that all that he is and all that he's done, his death, resurrection, righteousness, holiness, love, mercy, grace, ascension, enthronement, intercession, it's all applied to us in such an intimate way that in him we're actually crucified and then raised to newness of life, made to be new creations, washed, cleansed, not just forgiven and justified, but also sanctified, given new hearts, given new natures, and filled with the power of the very holiness and grace of Jesus, who is the incarnate God, to put sin to death in our mortal bodies, and to actually be able to grow in grace now, And be transformed by the renewing of our minds. To be be conformed to the image of Jesus' own glory. (laughs) From one level of glory to the next. And to more and more glorify God in our bodies and in our lives. That's what it means to be in union with Christ. That's what defines us. It means you don't define you anymore. Christ defines you. You don't define what's going to happen in your life anymore. You say, Christ, I want you to be the life through me and in me and to define me. So listen, the pursuit of marriage is a really, really good thing. And I pray that God blesses each and every one of you with it. And whether you're married or single, the pursuit of Christ and His glory isn't just a good thing, it is everything. Tomorrow we're gonna dig deeper, so I hope you come. Awake at 9 a.m. It's an early one. But we're going to dig deeper into this great spiritual treasure in Romans 6 and then in Galatians 2, which is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture, and learn more about what it means to be in Christ. But tonight, let's close in prayer. And then I think we're going to sing again, right? We're not going to sing again. But we're going to close in prayer and give glory to Christ. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we can't even begin to fathom and fully comprehend and understand the great significance and the great mystery of what it means that you have put us into Christ and accounted all that Christ is to us. But it is what you say and it is what you reveal with such clarity and with such power that, Father, it blows our minds. And so we ask that you would help us to understand as best as we can. We pray, Holy Spirit, would you illuminate the meaning of these things that you have recorded in the inerrant word of God to our minds and to our hearts. And would you help us to understand what we are in Christ. And would you help us to see the greatness of it, and the majesty of it, and the mystery of it, even in all of its incomprehensibility, in such a way that it would make Christ, Father, to be unsurpassed in glory and desirability and satisfaction in our hearts and in our minds and in our souls. And so, Father, we love You and we thank You and we give You praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.